take care while listening to this podcast. It discusses criminal activity, including violence, abduction, and murder, sometimes involving children. Also, any opinions in these episodes are solely the opinions of the creators telling the story. Suspects mentioned in these tales are considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. And these are real stories about real people. The most important thing we can do to honor the victims and their loved ones is to play an active role in our criminal justice system, remain vigilant in understanding our surroundings, and support organizations that work to make sure that stories like these remain the exception and not the rule. In The Offshore Pirate, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, All life is just a progression toward, and then a recession from, one phrase, I love you. That sentiment captures the ebb and flow of the heart, with love being the center. The journey toward it and then away from it can feel like a roller coaster, or the slow movement of the tides on a beach. It might also explain why Valentine's Day is a quote holiday that is both equally loved and reviled, both anticipated and dreaded depending on where you are in your life. Artists have grappled with this notion since the first human felt the inspiration to paint on a cave wall to dance, or sing out in the night sky. Love both gained and lost has been the inspiration for most art, both the written word, the painted portrait, and the harmony of the soul. There is perhaps no place where the existence of love is more fervently expressed than through music, and, in recent years, no star has more consistently examined love in both its beautiful and beastly forms more completely than Taylor Swift. If, a year ago, you would have told me that I would not only like her music, but consider myself a Swifty, I would have called you crazy to your face. But, that's where we are. What a difference a year makes. So why, might you ask, is Taylor Swift being mentioned in a true crime podcast collaboration? Well, she's the inspiration for the stories we're telling in this miniseries. Each case was chosen based on the title of a Taylor Swift song. So, let's dive into this episode of the Taylor Swift-inspired true crime collaboration. Puzzles. Some people like them. Some people don't. Some love the sound of the little pieces hitting the table. The anticipation for solving a big problem. The time it takes to focus on a singular activity. That's not me. I am not a fan of puzzles. Something about the dozens or hundreds of fragments overwhelms my brain and makes it difficult for me to remember the big picture. I find myself too focused on detail to detach from a single piece 
in order to see where it fits in its little universe. But missing persons cases are exactly like puzzles. The big picture is the person who is missing. The fragments are the clues, the statements, the pieces that must be stitched together to find the narrative, the motive, and most importantly, the path to bring the person home. Many kids love puzzles. Kids like Jeanette Tate, a 13-year-old girl who went missing from Aylesbury, Devon, England in 1978. You may not remember, or you may remember it fondly, a kinder time when kids delivered newspapers to front steps and front doors, riding bikes, tossing the news onto lawns, porches, or errantly in the flower beds. It was a time when parents taught their children about responsibility, discipline, and the importance of a hard day's work. During those days, society felt it was safe for kids to take their own paper routes, making a few dollars to buy a favorite toy, save for something bigger, or in some cases, contribute to the family's livelihood. In this story, not only was Jeanette Tate delivering the news, she also became part of it. On the front page of every newspaper around England. On the 5th of May, 1965, Jeanette Louise Tate was born in Taunton, Somerset, England, to John and Sheila. John and Sheila's union did not last. He and Jeanette relocated to the East Devon village of Aylesbury. John remarried, and there they lived with John's new wife, Violet, and her daughter, Tanya. Despite the new living arrangements, John and Violet made sure that Jeanette continued regular communication with Sheila. Family and friends described Jeanette as quiet, shy, and intelligent. She was good at arithmetic and enjoyed school. The family affectionately called her Jenny. Pictures of her show a girl with a shock of auburn hair curling over her ears. A cute, impish grin shattered by chipmunk-like cheeks and kind, inquisitive eyes. Some reports call her boyish because of her short hair at the time of her disappearance. In an article commemorating her 50th birthday, the news outlet The Express in the UK described her as elfin. According to Devon Live, which is the source for much of this episode, Jeanette loved animals, writing poetry, and had great curiosity about the world around her. John, Violet, Tanya, and Jeanette had a perfectly normal life in Aylesbury. Perfectly normal for three years before the unthinkable happened. The morning of August 19, 1978 started off as completely ordinary, something that continues to be a theme in these cases. It's something that continues to take my breath away. Right now, you could be a second away from the worst moment of your life. That morning, John took his wife, Violet, to her job at the Exeter Hospital. He came back and made breakfast for both Jeanette and Tanya. Tanya was going to spend some time with her biological father, so John took her and her boyfriend to the bus station 
He asked Jeanette if she wanted to come along. She declined, opting to stay home and work on a puzzle. She had a job to do shortly anyway. The paper route she picked up in the absence of the regular paper boy who was on holiday. John told his daughter goodbye, unknowing that it was the last time he'd ever see her again. At around 2 p.m., Jeanette mounted her blue bicycle and started toward her rendezvous point to meet the delivery van with the newspapers. She'd been doing the route all week. That day, Saturday, was to be her last time in relief for the boy on the route. Jeanette met the delivery van at the White Horse Inn and collected a bundle of the Exeter Express and Echo newspapers. She filled the basket on the back of her bike and pedaled off into the warm sunshine. At around 3.15 p.m., Jeanette came upon two of her friends on the route, Margaret Yeevee and Tracy Pratt. They were walking on Wither Lane, which was on Jeanette's delivery path. Jeanette dismounted the bike and walked with her friends for a few minutes, chatting until she decided it was time to finish the job. At this point, she'd gotten through about two-thirds of the route, having delivered more than a dozen newspapers. She was almost done fulfilling her commitment, her promise, and she was almost ready to head home. She cycled away from her friends, rounding a bend, where the two girls lost sight of her. They continued along the same path. Less than ten minutes later, Margaret and Tracy rounded the bend and found Jeanette's bike turned on its side. Newspapers were splayed into the roadway. They called out for her, searching the nearby fields and hedgerows, but received no response. The girls grabbed her bicycle and hurried to her home. In the extensive article on Devon Live, which I suggest you visit if you want to learn more, John, Jeanette's father, recounts that the girls came up the road pushing Jeanette's bicycle and told him that they couldn't find his little girl anywhere. Violet and John began their own search, but after a brief time, Violet encouraged John to call the police. When police arrived, they unfortunately found the absence of a crime scene. The girls, thinking they were being helpful, could have contaminated any evidence on the bike by moving it. Still, that didn't stop law enforcement from launching the largest and longest ever missing person search by Devon and Cornwall police. But what comes with a search of this magnitude? Attention. A massive police presence descended on the town and surrounding areas. Royal Air Force helicopters conducted searches from the air. Volunteers scoured the earth. The bitter irony is that Jeanette's face and the story of her disappearance was printed in the very same newspaper she delivered. At first, there were no leads. Detective Superintendent Eric Rundle was placed in charge of the investigation. He built his team into units with specific areas of responsibility. A couple of days after Jeanette's disappearance, Matilda Rogers, the wife of a policeman, came forward. She and her daughter Gail were staying in a cottage on Within Lane. Based on the media exposure, they knew they had something to share and came forward, 
They said they saw a man in a car on the lane shortly before Jeanette was reported missing. The two were walking toward their holiday home on Within Lane that day. They passed Jeanette and her friends on the bridge, but continued to walk. A few minutes later, they saw a man driving a maroon-colored car in the direction of the girls. He was described as Caucasian with short, dark hair. The color of the car was maroon. This tip from Mrs. Rogers was a good focus for the police to start on. Sadly, even with that, they were unable to narrow down any suspects. As we have spoken many times before, police also looked close to Jeanette, interviewing John about his whereabouts that day, but he had a rock-solid alibi. John's everlasting memory of his little girl was of her on the lawn at their home, doing puzzle books as he drove away. As days, weeks, and months passed, the likelihood of finding Jeanette started to become more and more slim. Law enforcement leveraged the power of the media, pushing to get Jeanette's story out there, and for the press to feature her photo and everything that they knew in the papers, on the radio, and on television. This strategy netted an incredible amount of interest. Thousands of people joined the on-ground search for Jeanette. However, with that much attention, there were distractions that took place as well. A number of psychics, conspiracy theorists, UFO buffs and the like, all likely well-meaning, but all taking air out of an already struggling investigation. One religious leader even opened a confession line with the faith that the abductor might call in and confess. The search has carried on for months, and in the years since, there has still been no sign of Jeanette. And as more cases came in, this one started to grow cold. The media scrutiny and intensity wore on John throughout the years. He suffered traumatic episodes. I think this is important to remember. The families who have lost loved ones are also victims. They have to deal with intense emotional trauma every day. The questions, the fears, the anxieties, and outside pressure from media or law enforcement does nothing but exacerbate those emotions. The public also remained rattled and police puzzled. And then a suspect appeared on their radar. But this suspect was someone in the UK and the world would come to know as a monster. He's not only believed to be involved in Jeanette's disappearance, but the abduction, rape, and murder of many other young girls. Robert Black is this man, this monster. One who preyed on the streets off his delivery route and took children from the roads. He was first arrested for the sexual assault, kidnapping, and murder of Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg, and Sarah Harper. He was prosecuted for those crimes, and then, based on a study of his routes and his case, police began to gradually suspect he was responsible for Jeanette's disappearance and suspected murder. They questioned him, though he was careful not to tie himself to Jeanette. But based on all the available facts, police drew the conclusion that he was the most likely perpetrator. Law enforcement's attempts to bring charges against Black for Jeanette's disappearance and suspected murder were rebuffed due to insufficient evidence. In 2011, Black was prosecuted for a fourth murder, that of nine-year-old Jennifer Cardi. This continued to prompt questions around Jeanette's disappearance. 
Police continued to work the case, getting close to bringing documents to prosecute Black for Jeanette's abduction and murder. And then, Black died. He died in prison in 2016, before all the pieces came together to finish this puzzle, just weeks before law enforcement was to present the file seeking his prosecution. So where does that leave us? All the puzzle pieces laid on the table, scattered about like a spilled box of cereal. Some pieces put together. The moment with Jeanette and her friends on a bridge. The man in the maroon car. The searches and commitment of a public desperate for answers. The father's grief and trauma. But still, many of the pieces are not put together. They are swimming in a sea of uncertainty, seemingly not fitting anywhere. And what we're left with is that elfin smile, that sweeping auburn hair, the picture of a little girl delivering newspapers who was almost home. John Tate, Jeanette's father, died in 2020 without resolution to his daughter's case. He died wondering what her last moments were. He died another victim in this tragic story. But I hope when he died, that he arrived in the afterlife to find his little girl working on a puzzle, just the way he left her, and that now they can sit together and know that everything will be okay. Thanks for listening to this episode. Check out all the other tales in this limited series featuring Extinguished, Deep Dark Secrets, Murder and Mimosas, True Crime Connections, and of course, Santa may be a criminal. Be nice. <laughs>